I thought I'd kick off with a bit of history about why we're doing AIDA or why we were asked to do AIDA. Um, last year, uh, we collaborated together on a production called Akhenaten, which is a Philip Glass opera, and uh, it's set in ancient Egypt. And I was slightly terrified about the idea of portraying uh, ancient Egypt, and so was Kevin. We, we hadn't uh, worked together before. And I think we were nervous about it, because if you look at other productions of... And there was a joke me and Phelim had when we were working on that, which was, oh, God, we don't want it to look like a bad Aida. Um, and the reason is that is putting Egypt on stage is really difficult. If you look at Harrods and the top floor there, of how blingy and terrible Egyptian costumes and sets can look. So we, we tried to find a language with Akhenaten, which was more about hieroglyphs. Uh, so scenically, I might just whiz through the storyboard. This is the white card model. I think it's helpful for you to see work in progress rather than finished things. Um, so this is what I call a white card model, which was halfway through us just putting up ideas and, and, and getting them costed. So the whole idea for me with Agnarton was that it was like a hieroglyph. It was very flat. It was a wall of people. So we had a sort of papyrus front cloth, which then opened to various chambers. And then a figure came out. We were really controlled theatrically what we saw of, of the space little by little until there was the whole chorus on stage and various things happening. Egg flying in, Akhenaten coming down stage, a floating body of his dead father there. Um, and then the window of appearances. And I'll show you how that... And then, basically, the, very, to be brief about Akhenaten, the, the main story is that he was a kind of a pharaoh that wanted to change everything. So he got rid of all the old religions and he made a new religion, which was just one god and worshiping the sun. So the big moment in Akhenaten was when this wall of hieroglyphs and this previous religion split apart literally and burst open and we had this symbol of the Arten, this god symbol, which was a huge inflatable. And then it all goes horribly wrong and, the old, and he gets killed and we go back to the old religion. So that's very briefly the sort of story of Akhenaten, and I'll just show you how it, how it looked when we finally hit stage with it. One of the yeah. first things as well was uh, from the hieroglyphs, Phelan was researching and found out that um, there were jugglers right, on yeah. some of the earliest hieroglyphs. So they used, we used um, jugglers in the top, you can see them. Um, to move the story forward. But one of the key things we, we found was that the more we researched about ancient Egypt, the darker and creepier and weirder it was. Mm. And rather than it being glossy and sunny and beautiful and bright, we went completely the opposite way and made it as dark as possible and as broken down and as creepy as possible. And we sort of embraced the strangeness. Um, and Kevin did some really interesting things do you want to talk about mixing periods? Um, well, we started here. to uh, look at um, the idea of putting um, a completely white cast on stage, really, and not looking Egyptian. Okay. We didn't really want to go down that route. So I started to look at imperialism, and when they found Tutankhamun's tomb was... Um, period that I started to look at really um, it made it more sense to use that 
as a period to start from. Um, and We were sort of influenced by the, the unlocking of Tutankhamun. Yeah. The finding of that tomb was influential so, so hugely across design and costume and 20th century looks that we thought that repercussion and that echo of looking back, we couldn't ignore that period. Well, that's the reason that they actually found out about Akhenaten yes, in true. the first place. So that's where it, the story kind of starts with him. So you get a sense of the, the aesthetic of it with all of these. And we wanted to use uh, strange... Well, I wanted to use strange headdresses to um, help create these creatures uh, that could be got, seen as gods, Egyptian Not gods. big enough to do that. And we used that in the silhouette at the beginning as well, uh, behind um, a cloth to create the image. And this is the, that's the big reveal of the big, big orb that was full of LEDs, and so we lit it and changed colour, and it did a million things. Anyway, that, that's, that's a very brief um, whiz to Aknaten, and that's what brought us on to Aida. Um, and when we started playing, I'm just going to, I'm not sure what I've put in here. Was, there was one symbol that me and Phelan were particularly pleased with when we were playing, uh, looking back at Aknaten, which was this symbol. So we pulled various symbols out from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So this is the page that inspired that. So I don't know if you can see. That's the symbol there in its original form. And we, we simplified all, all of these to make them become quite minimalist. And you can see how contemporary and modern it looks in its simplified form. And when we started work on Aida, we thought, there's something in that symbol. It's got potency. We didn't actually know what it meant. Since then, we've done our research, and it means an offering. It means a gift. So we were like, perfect. That's, that's great. So that one symbol kicked us off and, and became one of the key images for Aida. That and another page, couple of pages from the Book of the Dead is that's the symbol in the Book of the Dead for the temple. So whenever you see that in the Book of the Dead, that means it's, a, it's representing of a temple. So if I jump to your, an image in the storyboard of Aida, this is the that's what we open with. So it's, that's one half of that. And then there's the other, which is the temple. And that's both of them. So that symbol really is, is our opening scene. But just to give you an idea of the process of how I get there, um, I just want to show how messy and chaotic my starting points are, because uh, that can sometimes be a relief if you're... And so this is my sketchbook. So just working through, this is my, the very first time I went through the whole piece. So all I'm doing is sort of thinking how many people are on stage and what might they want and is it good if they're isolated? And, and I was told... Uh, right at the beginning, that with 80 people on stage, the best thing you can do is tear them up so they can all see the conductor. So that was my first idea of that, and I wrestled with trying to get the, the chorus up all on stages, and you'll see if my, as I go through a white card, that became more and more of a problem financially. So little by little, it went away. But this is just sort of atmospheres for each scene. Um, 
And you'll see as I go on that little bits of that just fall away. This is the first time we go into a model. So that stayed. That hasn't. We couldn't afford any of that. <laughs> we could afford that. So that stayed. And it just became impossible to, with that much stuff on stage. The one thing about Eno that's really difficult technically is that it's quite an old theatre and we're always in rep with two other shows. So you've always got to think that you've got, at the moment, we've got Barbara of Seville behind us and we'll have Rod Linder in the wing. So everything that I make and put on stage has to stay on stage. Um, you can fly up, but it can't, I can't get it off stage. There's, n there's another opera waiting in the wings, very literally. Um, so this is how you sort of slowly pad through a design, coming up with ideas and see which things stick and which things have potency. And then you take it to a production manager and he says, oh, you're insane about that. And that's not a good idea. And that is. Um, and so I'll just show you that, how that goes to the final. This is the final model. So you see it's all simplified down. The chorus have not got their platforming anymore. But, oh, you've got a question here. Yep. Later, yeah. I mean, you're always, it's a juggling act. Um, I sort of think of the design process as a spiral where you're, it's good to keep everything slightly in your head. If you get too bogged down with any one thing like feasibility and technicality, then you won't be thinking of atmosphere and you won't be thinking of mood and you won't be going on as big a journey as you can. So I like to go on the widest spiral I can that just slowly narrows down, cutting out things because they're technically wrong or don't work, but I think you've got to start as wild as you can, because there'll be something in that idea as wild and mad as it is, and, and it's fine to know I haven't got a hope in making this work, but there's, there may be some grain of truth in that idea that is worth keeping in the mix for another loop round, if you know what I mean, as, you, as you're going down. And sometimes I do go to a production manager and go, I want to get from here to there, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. I've got eight bars of music, help. And, you know, everything in theatre is a, is a collaborative process. So I don't have to solve everything. I have great teammates and great crew members and great relationships with people backstage who can come in and have ideas and, and chip in. Um, so going back to the storyboard, that was the, that's the temple scene that you can see is simplified. There's a female chorus hidden by a screen upstage and these pillars that fly in. And then we do a big costume sort of moment where the high priestess comes out. The high priestess is usually an off-stage voice, but we decided to bring her on stage because it just seems too good an opportunity to put somebody strange and interesting on stage. So, mm. Kevin, maybe you should... Do you want to show that one? I want to show that one because it, it, it really influenced so much. This was, <coughs> this was Kevin's response to, to, that. to that space yeah. and this idea of extending the silks out from her dress um, and from her we um, we had the idea of bloodletting as well didn't we did we, we did uh, to keep it dark and also when I was doing research they were um, they'd, they'd soak lotus 
flowers and alcohol to re, um, to take out the the hallucinogenics and so they'd be um, go into the alcohol and then they'd drink that so everybody would be quite high yeah um, and so it becomes this strange um, hallucination in a way of, uh, and she becomes more ethereal and strange things happen within that scene well, that's what we're trying yeah, to achieve. It's probably one of our stranger but most exciting scenes. It's visually really... Um, it's working well at the moment. That's yeah. the one scene I can say I'm, I'm pleased with. Um, and then this next scene change, I wanted to do it without a scene change. So the, it, literally the female chorus have been trapped upstage in there and, and we just fly this all live and a silk comes in and they just wander downstage and go straight into the next act which then slowly closes down. The other thing I should mention is we're working with a guy called Basil, Silk, uh, Basil Twist, who's a silk and sort of puppeteer. Um, so he's another member of the creative team that we're playing with. And so there's, that's why there's quite a lot of silk work in this show. It's just another element to, to keep it active. There's a lot of dances in this opera, and we wanted to not do traditional dances, so we're always looking for other ways of dealing with those chunks of music. Um, one thing to say about Aida versus Agnaughton is um, Agnaughton was, because the nature of the way it's written, it's very static. There's no actual scenes. In Agnaughton, it's very it's tableau after tableau after tableau. Nobody really engages with another person in a traditional theatrical sense. Um, they're just, uh, it's like a 20-minute scene, which is just the crowning of Agnaughton. There's no, nobody says anything, nobody, um, nothing happens that's written into the libretto. Whereas Aida is the opposite of that. It was written in the 19th century, and it's very, very, it's a very good narrative. There's fantastic scenes. So in designing that, it really, I couldn't possibly begin with that hieroglyph wall because nobody could sing to each other. There are, it's fine when they're not to have various people in different rooms singing at the same time. But in this opera, they really need spaces they can relate to each other in and play proper scenes. So come act three, this is... This is the end of Act Two. Uh, Aida and Neris have a sort of showdown, so they need a space where they can really tear around each other. Um, this is the, the end of Act Two, and this is the triumphant march. I don't know if any of you know, it's one of the most famous pieces of music from Aida, and it's usually done with uh, the Met production in New York, apparently goes round the block when they have endless slaves and uh, costumes and elephants and you name it. Um, giraffes, sauces. Giraffes, you name it. They, are, they come on one after the other. We don't have those funds and we don't really have the interest in doing that kind of thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with that production. It's great, but it's not the way we wanted to, to go. We wanted to do something opposite. So we really went quite opposite and we thought, what's this scene about? And it's, it's about a war having been won and coming back and celebrating that and, uh, and celebrating the guy that won the war. And we thought, well, if you think really practically about that, well, how do we do that? Well, often it's about honouring the dead. So we got quite excited about that. So rather than, you know, the expectation where the trumpets come on, you think there's going to be elephants, and instead there's coffins. And they're draped in flags. I designed a flag for this made-up world. And, uh, and we've made it very much about 
a funeral really so it's a cemetery and uh and we really embrace that idea so everyone's in mourning and the, we meet the families of each of these dead soldiers and and then it goes into this again a dance and so there's some uh, quite bubbly sort of music so we decided okay how do we deal with that well well let's make it about propaganda so we have the skills team of tumblers and they come on and they do this dance and there's flags waving and there's glitter cannons going off and it's quite deliberately absurd but that was our that was our way of dealing with a triumphant march and you might see later if uh, if it works or not uh, the, the end of the triumphant march is the ethiopian slaves are brought on and we 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 did that in a cage this is act three, so after the interval. Again, those two symbols from that hieroglyph just coming together. Uh, the judgment scene back into the cage. This is the main character now being judged and he's sentenced to death. And we end up, it's the male chorus on. These are have fire in them. And then we end up really trying to get the sense that he's now trapped within that prism, that same symbol that we started with, uh, and his tomb is almost the bottom of that prism, and Aida slips into the tomb with him, and uh, so they die together. And Amneris, her rival, is up above. There's a bar gate there, so she, she sings her final piece from above, looking down, seeing her, her rival dying with her lover and we close just down on her. And that's, that's our route through. So you see how it echoes the very first image is the, is the idea. Yep. Um, I think it's just the structure of the way it's written. That it's 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 very clever actually. It's really quite controlled. The first few first scene is just Radames and, and Ramphis, and you're, you're introduced very simply to the main characters, sort of one by one. So I think it's about focus, and I think that's what Verdi was trying to do: was go here are three characters, here's the story, there's a love triangle, and be really direct, so you're in onto the story straight away. And that holds for probably the first 10 minutes of the show. And so we went, we tried to go with that because I thought it's very, it's a very good idea to keep it. It's a, it's a good idea theatrically as well to just hold your, um, hold all the, your, your best things till later on. So you can slowly build and, and you want to, we, we talked in um, Agnaton about boring the audience deliberately of being really quite slow. Our, our prelude went on for, 10 minutes and we really held back just doing one image very slowly because then it builds a sort of slows the audience down and then you can really pop in with something exciting. So the idea of keeping that is not only st good storytelling, but it also gives us somewhere to go when we mm. reveal the Pharaoh and the full company. But it's also nice to be aware of peaks and troughs because you, you need to have really quiet moments through, visually throughout a piece. Yeah so that the higher moments have more impact. Because if you have one high moment after another and another, and you just get sick of it, yeah, you and you don't yeah. see everything. Um, that's the same as when we're doing a scene, you know, we can put everything into it and then 
Yeah. Strip it right back. I was at Sigur Ross last night that Bruno Poe, our lighting designer, designed, and it was a, it was an act of fantastic theatre making because he did just that. You know, he had a massive lighting rig, and he just didn't use half of it. And I could see, I was like, you've got a, you've got an LED screen up there, haven't you? And it was hardly using at all in Act One, and in Act Two, it just completely burnt your retina out <laughs> with imagery. And it was really, it was, it's worth seeing, just in a in a way of pacing theatrically, of showing key things little by little. Yeah. So the set was a lock, and you were just like, okay, well, that's going to open at some point because I know that that's when it's going to do it. And I feel like it kind of sometimes takes away from the production because it waits until the moment. Yeah, that's badly hidden, then, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. I think you've got to, yeah, you've, you've got, got to work quite hard. You've got to find your magic moments, haven't you? You have, yeah. But there's also something in anticipation. Mm. There is something in, in leaving a locked door there and never opening it and just leaving it for the audience to, to wonder about. I think the possibility of something happening that you don't know is going to happen or is also quite good. It depends, yeah. It depends on the text, doesn't it? Yeah. On the Do you want to talk about costume? Uh, well, I was wondering about the... Uh, have you got that picture of the colour reference? Oh, God. I was just thinking about where I start to come in and um, in the process, and I think it's generally when uh, you and Felm have done a done a fair bit. Are you talking about that one? Yeah, we started to look at colour reference and things, didn't we? For yes, I found that just in a, in a magazine, and I got excited by the colour of the lichen, mm. and I showed that to the painters for the walls and for Kevin and. And Kevin got excited by that as well. I mean, I did another, this was another sort of paint palette thing. Yeah. But, um, so it's it's all about sort of crusty, dark, worn te textures, but a richness that seemed sort of Egyptian. So that's probably where you started, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, and, I mean, a lot of this was, uh, the, we created the characters um, trying to pare back um, the the shapes on some of it uh, but I think because of some constraints um, I had to use huge amounts of stock as well which is also very challenging and exciting because you you don't just use it as it is. You've got to be able to experiment and turn things round, upside down. Or um, I like to make as well as I'm going along. So generally, if I'm uh, creating shapes, I'll do a quarter stand model and work on the stand to create something that we'll need for Amneris. But sometimes it's really hard to draw things like that. So you make a 3D model of it in fabric. Um, as far as the characters go, they um, we wanted to keep it in the similar sort of world to Aknarton. And I keep saying same world, but a different period. So we've 
in a way, I think it's either moved forward or back. You can't quite tell. Um, but it is very differently... Uh, no, definitely the same world. Um, but some of the um, aesthetics have changed. So you can still see some hints of the other piece, um, s the way we use the image of the gods with headdresses and things like that. Um, and some echoes of period shape. Um, and then I've also tried to bring in uh, some more um, aspects of fabric and pleating, which we didn't really do in Acknarton, which is maybe something which is probably a bit more to do with the images of Egypt and ple uh, pleated fabrics. Um, but in doing that, I wanted to use modern aspects of it. So instead of doing Egyptian pleating, I looked more at people like Balenciaga and um, oh, who else? Um, I'm trying to think. His name's gone out my head. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Miyake. Thank yeah, you. That, yeah. I had a senior moment then. Uh, yeah, it is a Miyake. Um, and used more of those sorts of images. Oh, and when, when we were in New York, who was the... Oh, Comme de Garçon. Yeah, there was an exhibition of Comme de Garçon. You came in and you said, oh, go and look at the exhibition at the Met. It. And uh, so went there and it, it was perfect for some inspiration for certain things, for the skills. I mean, just some of the things, the, the display wigs were inside out. So I pinched that idea and used it on some of the skills for some things um it it's strange where your influence has come from and it sometimes that it all um just gets yeah. soaked into a sponge really uh as you s and you can pull back on it uh, later on so much of it is um research led I like to do, you know, half the fun's in the research and the, uh, either f discovering the characters or the period. So that was the first, uh, oh yeah, the red drawing, and then transferring that into, do you want to click on to the next one? I think there's, uh, um, there's a picture of the high priestess, I think, in fitting. Oh no, that's the, um, that's right. the picture I talked about of, for, um, this is the high priestess in the fitting. Uh, and then I think there may be one, another, oh no, that's her address. And that's another picture of fitting, the process of um, taking it from the design through. Um, it's worth just mentioning how we, that costume is, um, is then manipulated by Basil Twist and the yeah. skills team. So it's a real collaboration, this image. So her dress is so long that the, the tumbling uh, team, which we call the skills, uh, stand on each other's heads and then they take her dress out. So there's four towers of people too high and they have the... So these bits are going up to other performers that are standing up there. And then at the, at the sort of peak of the scene, there's another series of red silks that pour out from the platform underneath her and they're manipulated 
by the chorus and then they go off to the crew in the wings and then they lift it up and so the very end of the scene the silks all go up to the fly floor and then in and fly out so there's um there's not a member of the team that's not involved in this look mm. it's a uh, it's completely group yeah activity The incorporating these kind of ideas <coughs> with a skill sheet so that some of your changes can happen. You've got more people to make them happen. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much the it way he's early Phelan, on that yeah. um, he, he fell and wanted to use Basil, wasn't it? Yes, we knew, yes, we knew about Basil, and this, he's a great. So know, that's why puppeteer. we put the extra long red silks onto that frog. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't know who would be manipulating it. Mm -hmm. and Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it did. Yeah. But we didn't know that the skills would be um, able to stand in each other's heads. No, that's no, true. That was that was a gift. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also a challenge because uh, working um, with people who have different skills, you have to take that into consideration when you're designing the costume um, and taking it through, making it, and see what they can need. Uh, work with so you have to modify things all the time um, and collaborate in what shapes you can make um, or how people can balance on each other's shoulders what fabrics you can and can't use um, what footwear they can wear safely um, yeah, there's lots of things to... And also movement, you know, how they can move, um, what allows them the freedom or um, the restraint. And that goes for, actually, with opera, the um, corsetry. Uh, there are different things that people um, like or don't like to um, for singing, really. Um, Sometimes they don't like to be too restricted because and they definitely don't like to have too much around the neck that's too tight. So it's real basic things for certain... Um, Some singers don't like hats, do they? No, because of the sound. Yeah. Um, it, if it cuts off the sound, so you, can, you either have to have it at a certain angle mm -hmm. Um, or have it made out of something that won't absorb the sound. Yeah, a singer once explained to me that the sound comes straight out of the top of their head, which is not something I'd ever heard or understood before. No. But that was the reason that, yeah, hats straight here were... Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was the sound of <laughs> bouncing and not being able to yeah. hear. It probably is. But it's probably a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different for different people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are lots of, and costume is a, also a collaboration with the singer. Um, you know, even though I design an image, when you see who's wearing it, it may not be appropriate. So you have to modify it in certain ways uh, to try and get the, the character um, on the stage. It's about finding the right character. Yeah. Oh, quite late, really. Quite late, yeah. <laughs> well, ish. Um, I think we've got the idea of what they are, and then um, 
but we kind of, I suppose, we've started doing it. I'm trying to think. By the time I've done my final designs, we know who it is, because I like to use uh, the actors' faces in the designs, so I know it's going to work and their proportion. Oh, this is the chorus. This is another trick that we do. They start off in red dresses and then going into Amneris's chamber, they change in magically into white. Because And that was another thing uh, that, that we had to do because the women don't have time to change between scenes, um, but they have to be completely different between two scenes and all they can do is walk forward. We had to find a way of changing them completely to be different characters. So that, that was probably caused by my hope set. to... Yes, yeah. by set. Because <laughs> I wanted to not stop. The, that, that's between Act 1 and Act 2. Yeah. And I wanted it to just go on. And so and rather than close down, because I thought we've closed down too many times, would it be fun if, if we were in the temple and we just flew it out and the female chorus just walked down stage? And then in talking about that, we said, but they'd be in the wrong colour. They'd be red in the, uh, in the temple. And wouldn't it be great if they were white in her... Um, in her boudoir yeah. uh, and so Kevin came up with this genius idea to make them change on stage as they walk down do you want to explain the technicality of it um, it's so but if, you, if you move on one I think that you can oh no that's the headdress maybe another one it's the red it's chorus in red women oh right that's okay um, anyway, so the, there's a ver there's the dresses, um, they're like tubes, um, and the inside um, is red, and part of it goes over their heads and became becomes a cape. Um, so the blue hair is covered um, and is a veil, and as they lift that down. Uh, it, and it falls, the inside is the white. So um, that's how we were able to do that, really. I've used it before in a simpler way um, on a dance show, so I knew it was going to work. It's great. It's a great, <laughs> great effect. Also, I did the blue hair because of um, lots of imagery when we were doing Aknarton. The hieroglyphs had, they were, all the hair was painted blue. And I just got a bit fixated with that and taking it forward again into this. It worked quite well because it gives you not, um, straight away a, an image that refers to the fact that people used to wear wigs so much, especially if you put a bandage underneath it. So there are lots of things that I wanted to bring in culturally. Yeah, sorry. No, they generally don't. We don't hire because um, it'll be in rep, and this is a co-production as well. So it'll go from here to Houston, Texas, and Geneva. Um, so the, generally, what happens is uh, the chorus costumes will stay with the production, and they will go to the next place. And the principals you might remake if they're a different size. Um, but we tend not to hire things because that it'll be put on again and it's cheaper just to keep it. 
install. I can't remember what the other part of the question was, sorry. Yeah, was that? yeah so we do make quite a lot. Uh, or we use stock items and alter it. Um, so if there are uniforms, if you know, if I'm trying to make um, an army because it's so expensive to tailor for everybody, uh, I'll see what they have in the store. And here it's quite handy because there are old productions that they may not do anymore. So I can draw from that stock and then change it so it becomes something else. Um, trying to think. Oh, the other thing we would um, was um, hair and makeup, I suppose, trying to follow this through into uh, this Egyptian world. Uh, and I loved these headdresses uh, and the shape reminded me of the things we'd done on Nefertiti and um, and this, they're from North Africa and Egypt crossover and it seemed to fit perfectly with what's happening in this story uh, with Aida coming from Ethiopia and the makeup uh, with the the slaves uh, at one point her father uh, when he's captured in, in the and they're all in the cage, um, he says that he's wearing his country's colours. So I used the red, yellow, and green of the flag. Um, but lots of the oh, I don't think I put that on there. Lots of the makeup that they um, I referenced it was just like hand marks. So I use the, it's really messy hand marks across their faces, but using those colors. And the art, their army is like a defeated army from the desert. You know, they're bedraggled and um, a mess, really. <laughs> oh, these, are, these were the first designs for the uh, chorus, not the chorus for the skills for the temple. Uh, we wanted it to be Egypt. The clothes were very light, basically thin um, layers of fabric that didn't really cover that much. So I wanted to use nudity again. We did um, the idea of fake nudity on Akhenaten because there was in Akhenaten it was more about his physicality uh, and shape and the fact that statues of him were uh, very androgynous. So I was examining sexuality in that and painting body stockings. Um, so I wanted to carry that through as well, but giving the illusion of painted bodies on clothes um, and nudity and what the idea of nudity is and dressing the body and what that is. Um, so that's why I painted different layers, wearing painting on bras, but making um, 
creating illusions and layers again because of in the temple going back to the idea of uh, the hallucination and things being out of sync with the eye but they did change slightly uh, because we changed the color well, or I put more red in so it's evolved from this and it's much it's a much redder image but we've still got the tattoo bodies with bloodletting and that sort of thing on there some of the headdresses we couldn't oh yeah we well. couldn't use some of the headdresses because just because of the the physicality they um people standing on each other's shoulders just doesn't work if you've got a big floral headdress on <laughs> so i moved a couple of them round and because we started we we had to start making so early uh, some of the things were ready made like the gold bull's head i loved that so i moved it from that scene into a later scene on the nile where we needed a different tableau uh, which was quite handy, really. So we got to use quite a few of the others later on. But I quite like doing that as well, as, um, creating things so people have got things to experiment with in rehearsal, um, because so much of it is about creating pictures that y you may only, you know, practice. Um, on a couple of days in rehearsal, but you haven't got time to make everything afterwards. You don't know what pictures you're going to make, so it's good to have a box of toys to play with. Yeah, you have to be very flexible. This yeah. The process of making opera is much harder than making theatre. It's very brutal. It's very... I don't know if you know the structure of the rehearsals, but it's worth um, explaining a bit. We, we have something called stage and piano rehearsals, which we've got five of. So that's a, it's about 2.30 till 5.30 is a session. So what's that? That's three hours. Yeah. So we've got five three-hour sessions to stage the entire opera. Um, and that's with every single cue, every light, every moving piece, where people get on and off, everything you do. Uh, and then it goes into stage and orchestra rehearsals. And once you're in orchestra rehearsals, um, we can't, we're not in control of them. So we just have to sit back and watch. We can, we can run on stage and quietly whisper in somebody's ear, you're in the wrong spot, or can you move up stage a bit? But the orchestral rehearsals are run by the conductor, and it's really for her, it's her time to pull the whole thing musically together. So really, we have five sessions to really stage everything. So you have to be so flexible that, because to be honest, we're all guessing. You know, we may have been doing this for years, but... You never know until you hit stage, really, if that if costume's going to work, work or, or yeah. if that set's going to work or this mad idea about silk is really going to work. And it's not only if it's going to work, but if it's, is it going to work in this three-hour slot we've got to do it in? It may be a great idea, and it, you know it's going to be beautiful, but actually you probably need six hours to really make it work. You have to brutally at that go, time go, this isn't going to happen. You know, we're not going to get this done. So bye-bye, and we'll, let's do something else but you've still got the music. So unlike in theatre, you might just go, let's just not do that sequence. If you take something out, you've still got a whole of big chunk, and we found that in the, in the triumphant march. There were bits just that weren't working, and we really wanted to cut them, but we couldn't. You know, there's a lot of music there, so we just you have to think on the spot, right, that's not working, let's do something else, and let's make sure it's something that will work by the end of this session. 
so that we can see it next week. It's brutal. But it's thinking on your feet. Yeah, it's, it's exciting fun. as well. It is fun. Yeah, if you've got a good team that work together well, then then you can often you know pass the buck. If my thing's not working, <laughs> I'll go, Karen, <laughs> make this image work, or you know, or Basil. It's great having Basil Twist because yeah. you know I couldn't possibly make all those silk mo uh, moments work while while doing everything I have to do scenically. Hmm. It's yeah, it's spreading out and knowing that you can turn to each other and you know go. Oh, what do we do here? Yeah. It's strange as uh, oh, we're talking about the um, the amount of time you have on stage, um, and also it differs from different places. Because here um, you can still sort of work backstage on things if you need, but if you're in America and at the Met, there are very different rules. You can't so touch anything. you can't touch. The costumes once it's gone down to stage has to be sent back up to the workroom before you're allowed to work on it again. You, know, you can't physically touch things because it's against the union rules. There are lots of strange little things. I've been told off many times for <laughs> touching props for the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah me We're too. very lucky here as well that we yeah. we do have um, rehearsals fully in costume. Mm. A lot of houses, particularly in Europe will only put costumes on stage, particularly the chorus costumes, till really very late, like the dress rehearsal, um, which is a very old-fashioned way of thinking and terrible, to be honest, because it gives you no time to go, that doesn't work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's it. You don't have time to adjust it. Okay. We have less time. Yeah. I mean, it, it also depends. I mean, that we're putting some costumes... There are a couple of costumes that you won't have seen till today because they're on... Um, trumpeters in triumphal march uh, and we've not been able to have access to the musicians for that section until now really mm. so that'll be fun to see <laughs> yeah we'll be changing things right up till mm. the to the very you try not to change anything after the open dress just because you want everyone to settle down and know what they're doing and know what they're wearing but right up until that moment and probably even during then you you'll be changing certainly lighting cues and tweaking cues and pulling it all together. But you've also got to look at the amount of time between um, the, the rehearsals. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of breaking down that I want to do, but I know that there's only certain gaps that I can do things in. So you have to think about the, the actual transportation from taking it here to the workrooms and how long it's going to take people to do it and... You know, so you're always thinking about things like that as well. Well, I am, for frocks, anyway. Um, related on to this topic, uh, when, when do you know when something is not working? And what makes you think that it's not working? Like, what is the thing that goes, well, like, this costume is not working, this scene is not working? It's, it, it, that's a really good question, because you don't always know. <laughs> so... Um, I think me and Phelan realised the other day, we had, we had this slide, you know what I'm going to talk about. The slide has <laughs> yeah. opened on Act 2, Scene 2, The Big Triumph of March, and me and Phelan just went, <laughs> oh my God, what, what, what is wrong with this image? And, you know, we're not geniuses, we don't know. It was, we were just bombarded by a lot of stuff, and, and so we immediately ran over to Bruno and went, it's all wrong lighting-wise, it's too... It's, and he'd done something very monochrome, and we went, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, change it. And, 
And so we changed all the lighting and made it bright, and, and it was worse, actually. It was, <laughs> and it wasn't until we realised that there were some things that were wrong in costume, and, yeah. you know, and there were... And we had to pare it down and, and we, take things out. It was actually just too be much. Yeah. It was too, too many Too much images. to look at, yeah. And so then we realised, no, the monochrome is right. But, you know, you don't actually know. All you, all you know is something's wrong. You'll get a feeling. Horrible. It's just, it's just a feeling. I think that you just have to... Most of what we do on stage is instinctual. If it bugs you, it's general. It, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. I think it's really important to somehow tap into your instinct and your sub subconscious, if you will. And I think drawing is really good for that because sometimes you need your, is it your left side of your brain? Mm. Uh, to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can be instinctive about, you know, yeah. if you're constantly analyzing, why is it red? What does that mean? You may not go as far as you, you could, or you might not make as interesting choices. Um, so that's why drawing can sometimes be good because you can just be a bit more free and you'll instinctively go for that strange colour in your palette and you don't know why, why and you're just following something and then afterwards you can probably intellectualise why that's right or why you made that choice. But I do find most of the time the subconscious idea is usually better than the, than the, instinct, you know, the, the heavily thought out one. And I think that applies to making as well anyway because you, you're seeing what happens with your hands and how it affects the fabric or how mm. things are move together that you can't always do um, when you do when you're creating 3d things um, you know in a two-dimensional way yeah. there's a theory that a messy studio is actually quite a good thing because it means chaos can happen and I do think the coffins oh, really? came from that because well, I'm quite relieved though. yeah no, it's a good thing um, <laughs> Because I was doing a production of um, Nutcracker and there was a coffin in that and, uh, and it was in the studio and, and I think I, one day I just went, <laughs> maybe that should go into that show and I didn't know why and I think it's, you know, these, these strange ideas come and you just have to follow them and, and then, then you work out, oh, actually, that's a really good idea that could solve a problem. Uh, it's a strange process. It is, but it's exciting when it comes together. And that's half the fun is the process. Mm. Um, you know, with your first day on stage, you, you know, for me, it's seeing the costumes and you go, okay, what do we do? Because it's, it's always a shock to see things with everything together. And it's, is it right? Isn't it right? And you're always painting mm. a picture. Everybody together is painting a picture. Yeah. And it's important to say that it's not always, things are not always wrong just aesthetically. Mm. It may be the scene, they're just too much for the scene. And, you know, you know, it may be the most beautiful costume that you've ever designed or the most beautiful piece of furniture. And it just has to go because it's not serving the scene. It's not allowing that singer to have the right connection with the other singer and not tell a story. And that's brutal, but you, that's something you have to learn of. Um, that it's the bigger picture is often the most important thing. It's not always about the best thing you've designed. Mm. And, uh, and that's sad, but true. But, you know, you've got to serve the piece, not 
not just the your one element of design. And when a team works really well together, they're they're constantly evaluating their work with everybody else's work. And is, you know, is the lighting serving the costume? Is it serving the singer? Is it serving the, the narrative? It's all like it's a balancing trick. Yeah. Is it a general trend in the industry to move on premises freedom designs to a minimalistic design, or is it just here at United Trends it's got sort of a limit, a budget? Um, no, it was a choice, I think. I think it was, yeah, looking at those. I mean, yeah, we, it's, a, it's truthful that we don't have, do we have to wind up? Okay, quickly, I think, yeah, it's, it's a choice about doing something well, and, and we didn't have the money to do elaborate, big Egyptian, nor the interest, really. It was more about creating a darker, stranger world, and going simpler and more minimalistic felt right. It felt like it would give us more impact. And you had a second question? Yeah. No, that was Zandra Rhodes. So, if the cast or the whole design cast changes, do you scrap everything at all, or do you look back into the archives and say, this is what we're thinking about? I, I often deliberately don't look at previous mm. productions. It's good to just be, yes, completely. Try not to look at anything yeah. related to it before, but so you can have a completely fresh. Yes. I mean, sometimes it's good to look at other productions um, and say, what are the pitfalls? What are the things that mm. I want to avoid? But I didn't. I haven't looked at the previous production of. Um, so I don't like to be influenced by yeah, something else. I think it's nicer to. It's more important to follow your own track. That's the the danger. If you look back and you see something that's really good, you go. Oh, yeah. Damn, yeah. yeah. What about the big sets? You The actual sets stay in um, in storage so that as this production is going as Kevin said to Geneva and Houston so while it's a live show uh, which means it's in the rep and being used it's in storage um, but after a, a while a show gets deaded and they they decide to make a new production and at that point it's thrown away oh, oh god yeah. yes. thank you thank you, thank you.